TorahCafe.com. So there was this Jew who would come in each night for a drink, what they call here Lechayim, what we call in New York alcoholism. And he ordered two glasses of Crown Royal, big glasses. He made a toast and he downed them both. Next night, the same thing. Next night, every night. Bartender looked at him and said, besides the fact that you're obviously an addict, I wonder why don't you diversify your menu? He said, I'll tell you, I had a best friend and we used to go for a drink each night. He would have a glass of Crown Royal, I would. He died last year. I want to carry on his legacy forever. So how do you carry on a person's legacy? You drink the same, the same scotch he did. So I come each night, I drink two glasses, one for him and one for me. He does this for 30 years. After 30 years, he comes one night, and he orders one glass of Crown Royal. The bartender looks at him and says, what happened? He says, I'll tell you, I quit drinking. <laughs> this is, of course, a classic case of Jewish denial. Denial is not only a river in Egypt, it's also part of people's lives. And it's denial, among other flaws, that we, you and I and us, attempt to address during these unique days in the Jewish calendar. The final days of the month of Elul, the culmination of a year 5775, and the welcoming of a new year 5776, and we say in our prayers, Tachel Shana, Tichle Shana Vekileloiseha, Tachel Shana Berchaiseha. Let a year and its curses end. Let a new year and its blessings commence. The curses and blessings are not only the curses and blessings outside of us, it's also the challenges the stumbling blocks within each of us that hold us down. We say a new year begins. Let us have the courage to be able to say goodbye to those things that hold us down. And let us open ourselves up to the opportunities of a new year. So you know, there was this American family that was very proud of its lineage. They can trace back their roots to the year 1620. They were from the originals who came on the Mayflower to the United States of America in the early 1600s. Their name, Smith. And they always spoke to their children and descendants about the glory and the prestige of this great family, which literally set the foundations of this awesome country. And once they decided it's time to record the family heritage in a book, so that the children of the future should know the past. And when they were doing research on the family, they came across one character which almost ruined the entire legacy. They discovered that great, great, great Uncle Clarence was found guilty as a murderer and was executed in the electric chair. To delete him from the book would be dishonest. To include him in the book would of course confer a large stain on the glorious heritage of this family. What do you do? What do you do? So the author guaranteed them that under his professional pen all will be Beautiful and wonderful. And when they finally opened the book, and they went straight 
to great-great-uncle Clarence, they found that this is what he wrote. Great-great-uncle Clarence occupied a chair of applied electronics in a very, very important governmental institution. He was attached to his position with the strongest of wires. And his death came as a great shock. <laughs> and this is our question tonight. <laughs> days of guilt or days of love? Somebody once asked me, Rabbi Jacobson, what's the definition of a Jew? And I said, a Jew is somebody that if he doesn't feel guilty, he blames himself. This young Jewish woman came home from a date. Her mother says, "No, how was he? How was he? She's like, okay. You've been dating for months and months and months. It's time to make a decision, you know. Do you like him? She says, listen, I like him very much. There's one big problem. She says, what, do you want to marry him or not? She's like, I want to marry him, but there's one big issue. Today we finally discuss theology. And believe it or not, this boy, I mean, he's a great kid, and he's a great guy in so many ways. He doesn't believe in the concept of hell. <laughs> he doesn't believe in the concept of hell. Hell, you never heard of that. It's a word in the dictionary. It's a word in the dictionary. You're in Florida, you're completely living in La La Land. <laughs> Come to where I live. <laughs> he doesn't believe in paradise and hell. How can I marry him? Oh, her mother looks at her and says, marry him. Between you and me, we'll show him it exists. <laughs> what is the role of hell, of reward, of punishment, of guilt, of repentance in Judaism? A Jew told me once, Rabbi, I don't go to synagogue anymore, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. I said, why? He told me, too much guilt. It's all about, I sinned, I sinned, I sinned, I sinned, I want to repent, I should have repented. My father sinned, my mother sinned, my grandfather sinned, we're all sinners, sinners. I had enough of it. I'm not interested. So I told him, why don't you just do JFK? He said, what's that? I said, just for Kiddush. <laughs> That's the new custom in Florida. <laughs> And some people do it even in the middle of Davani. They call it a Kiddush club. <laughs> he said, it's very hard for him. Especially Yom Kippur is coming. You fast and all day, Ashamnu, Bagadnu, Gazalnu, I sinned, I sinned, clapping, clapping. Al Khait, one confession. We do confession nine times on Yom Kippur. I turned to him and I said, friend, my dear friend, did you ever wonder that we confess on Yom Kippur with music, with a song. You ever went into a congregation? Ah, yeah, 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 Ashamnu, Bagadnu, Gazalnu, Dibarnu, Daivi, Aminu, ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Now imagine somebody sinned to you. To you. They stole money from you, they gossiped about you, they insulted you, they hurt you. They want to apologize, they want to confess. They come over to you and they say, Mark, I insulted you. I stole $50,000 from you. Get out! What is this? Lame is Rob? What is this? A Broadway musical? This is a confession or a musical? Well, what are they singing? And then in al you know al those lists of sins? So every, after every dozen or so sins, we stop. It's time for a song. Please forgive us, please atone us, please cleanse us for the sin of that and for the sin of that. What's going on here? 
By the way, there was a rabbi who consulted me the other day. He had to do a chuppah, officiate. And there's only seven blessings, so there's only seven honors. But he had 50 people to honor. So he asked me, how do I all honor them under the chuppah? I said, instead of the seven blessings, do the alchet. <laughs> the only challenge is you have to make sure the right person gets the right alchet. <laughs> if you can do that, first of all, the crowd will have a very wonderful evening. And everybody will get the honor that is due to them. He didn't accept my, uh, my advice. I don't know why. I thought it was brilliant. He went back to the seven blessings and he got into a fight with everybody. What's this musical? I asked this person. How do you explain this? There's another interesting question. All of our confessions are done in the plural. You know that? Never in the singular. Asham knew, but God knew, Gazal knew. We sinned, we betrayed, we stole, we lied, we deceived. al we transgressed. If I come to you to confess, and I say, you know, I want to make a confession. You say, go ahead. Yeah. Imagine you go home to your wife. You say, I have to come clean about something. She's all excited or nervous. And you're like, we, we... Last week, you remember when we said we're going on a business trip? Really, we ended up by mistake in Nevada somewhere. We. Her first question is, who's we? I come over to you, we stole. We, who's we? I. Accountability means I, not we, there's no we, there's I. Not one confession is I, a whole Yom Kippur, a whole Rosh Hashanah, all the slichot that are going to begin Saturday night. We, we, what's this we? True, today in America there's a game called we, and it's spelled with two I's. But who's the two I's? I, not we. There was a uh, Jewish kid walking with a Christian kid, a Catholic kid, and each one was bragging about their clergy. The Jewish kid was speaking about his rabbi, and the Catholic kid was speaking about his priest. And the Catholic kid tells to the Jewish kid, he says, you can't compare my priest to your rabbi. He says, why not? He says, my priest knows about our private lives much more than your rabbi. The Jew said, of course, you tell him everything. We attribute the concept of confession to Catholicism, to Christianity. But the truth is, let's examine what real confession is. On Rosh Hashanah, after we blow the shofar each day, and each time we blow the shofar in the prayers, we say a lovely little prayer, which we actually sing as well. The words are well known, Hayom Harat Olam. Or Hayom Haras Olam, if you're an Ashkenazi. Hayom Haras Olam, which means today is the birthday of the world. Because Rosh Hashanah, we celebrate the anniversary of the birthday of the world and the birthday of Adam and Chava, Eve and Adam, Adam and Eve. So we say Hayom Harat Olam, today is the birthday of the world. Hayom Yamid Bamishpat Kol Elamim. And there's the famous tune to those words. Hayom Harat Olam. Or whatever tune you choose in your congregation. Where does this expression come from? Harat Olam wasn't originated in the prayers. It comes from the prophet Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah, who observed the destruction of the first temple in 586 before the common era, BCE. And he gave us the book of Lamentations, and the book of Yirmiya, the book of Jeremiah. Suffered a miserable life. To the point that he cursed the day he was born. It happens to be that he was born on Tisha B'av, on the 9th of Av, according to tradition. And in one of... The chapters of Jeremiah, the prophet, says something very tragic and very memorable. He says, I wish the person who told my father and shared with him the news 
that I was born would have never said those words, for I would have never been born. I wish that my birth would have never happened, and harat olam rachma, I would have remained eternally pregnant in my mother's womb, meaning I would die in the womb, I would be a stillborn. Harat olam rachma, I wish I would have been eternally pregnant. The sages got the words harat olam from that prophecy. But they changed it around. Harat in Hebrew means pregnant. Hara is pregnant. Vatar, she was pregnant. Harat is pregnant. Jeremiah said, I wish that I would have been forever pregnant in her womb. Olam is forever. Harat is pregnant. The rabbis took the verse, they paraphrased it, and they gave it two different meanings. From pregnant, they turned it into birthday. From forever, they turned it into a world. Harat olam, we say today, is the birthday of the world. So the Avudraham says, harat means pregnant, it doesn't mean a birthday. But when we say in our prayers, hayom harat olam, we don't mean today, we're pregnant forever. That's not such a nice uh, declaration. It's a curse of Jeremiah. But they took that verse... And they put it into our texts. And we are saying today is the birthday of the world. Why would they take such a morbid curse and transform it into the declaration after the blowing of the shofar and really change the meaning of the words? From pregnant to birth and from eternity to the world, the universe. Hayom harat olam. Friends, as a good Jew, I want to ask another question. May I? Okay, before you fall asleep. The word for confession in Judaism is vidui. Vidui. Lehit vadot. To verbally confess your mistake. It's called vidui. Here. There is an astonishing mitzvah that is recorded in this week's portion, Parshat Kitavo, which is always read in the days and weeks before Rosh Hashanah. And it's the mitzvah known as Vidui Ma'aser, the confession of the tithing. And let me explain what it is, because it's a fascinating tradition. In the ancient land of Israel, when most Jews were farmers, and many Jews till today are farmers, Agriculture occupied a major part of the Jewish life. In fact, the holidays revolved around our agricultural cycle. And we had a seven-year cycle. The seventh year was the sabbatical. It's actually this year, Shemitah. 5775 is a sabbatical year. Next year is the year of Hakel. And the system was, during year one, you had to give from your crop, from all your produce, you had to give part of it, 2% to the Kohen, because they didn't have a job, they worked in the temple. Another 10% to the Levites, who also worked in the temple. And then another 10% you brought to Jerusalem to eat, so you could spend time in the holy city. That was year one. Year two, you gave the same 2 and 10% to the Kohen and the Levite, but the other 10%, instead of giving it, year two was the same like year one, sorry, year three, the next 10%, instead of taking it to Jerusalem, you gave it to the poor. Year four and five was a repeat from year one and two. Year six was a repeat from year three. Year seven, your fields and farms were ownerless. Everybody could come and enjoy them the sabbatical year. Comes the Torah and says, twice in this seven-year cycle, you have to make a confession. On the last day of Passover of year four and the last day of Passover of year seven. What was the confession? The confession was that you gave away all the produce that you had to give away to the poor people, to the widows, to the orphans, to the strangers, to the Kohenites, to the Levites. Year four, you did it once for the first three years. And year seven, you did it a second time for the last few years. I want to read to you. You have a Chumash, a Chumash Dvarim. Anybody? Chumash Dvarim. This week's parsha. I want to read to you this confession that every Jew who owned property, who owned fields and farms in the Holy Land, would make... On the last day of Passover, year number four and year number seven. 
Because when we hear the text and we hear the words, thank you, there is a very perplexing question here. I'm going to translate in, Hebrew, in English for those who don't understand, but listen to the words. And then you tell me what my question is. So you get up and you speak to God twice in seven years and you tell God these words. I removed all the sacred portions of the crop of the produce from my home. I gave it to the Levite, to the stranger, to the orphan, to the widow, following all the commandments that you commanded me. I did not transgress any mitzvah, nor did I forget anything. I did not eat it in a state of mourning. I did not eat it when I was pure. I did not use it in inappropriate ways. I obeyed your voice. I did everything you commanded me. Now look down from heaven and bless me. This is what every Jew does twice in seven years. You get up and you tell God, I did it all right. I ask you two questions. Number one, what's the purpose of this? You gave it away. You gave it away. Great. All the charities you had to give to the Kohenites, Levites, poor people, widows, orphans, you did. God knows. You're getting up and you're just telling him I did it. The bigger question, why is it called confession? Why is this called vidui ma'aser in Jewish law? The confession of the tithing. Where is there a confession here? Imagine you come home tonight after the lecture, you're inspired, you turn to your wife and you say, Honey, I have a confession to make. She's married to you 22 years. She never heard you confess. She melts. And she says, yes, go ahead, my darling. And you say, my dear wife, I would like to inform you that I am the most perfect human being you could have ever got. I am flawless, I am impeccable. I never make mistakes. I never forget anything that you tell me. Whatever you ask me to do, I do perfectly. I have been the greatest husband and I've been the greatest father. I never violated your trust. I never displayed disloyalty. And now would you give me a wonderful dinner? Call him normal, call him insane. But don't call this a confession, my friends. This is not a confession. And yet, we call this confession. This man doesn't even say one mistake that he made. All he says to God is, Shamati I forgot nothing. I transgressed nothing. I did everything you told me. Wonderful. Why is it a confession? Why is this called a confession? You know the German who comes to the priest Sunday morning, I have a confession. The priest says, yes, what's going on? He says, during the war, the Second World War, I hid a Jew in my attic. The priest says, okay, it's not the greatest sin in the world. You don't have to confess. He says, no. I charged him a hundred marks a week. The priest says, listen, I'm not going to tell you it's the nicest thing to charge somebody for saving their life, but it's also not the greatest sin in the world. After all, you put your life in danger to save him. German says, yeah, but am I obligated to tell him that the war is over? What confession? Where is there a confession here? Telling God I'm perfect? Friends, it's this very question that gives us the Jewish perspective on what tshuva is, what repentance is, what Rosh Hashanah is, what Yom Kippur is, what guilt is. There is a mitzvah in the Torah that twice in seven years you have to stand up to God and you know what you have to talk about? You have to talk about how good you are. That's it. How many of you do that? You stand in front of the mirror, 
and all you talk about is how great you are. And not only don't we call you a narcissist, we say it's a mitzvah. You have to talk to God about the tithing and say, I did everything right, perfect, wonderful. There's a mitzvah in that. You have to be able to look at yourself and say positive things about your identity and your behavior and literally compliment yourself in the presence of God. And all the only one you say this to is to God, not your therapist. He won't believe you. Not your mother-in-law. She certainly won't believe you. Only God who knows it's true. But what's the point? The point is, because only somebody who's capable of identifying their positive qualities and the goodness in their identity, that person is also capable of confessing their mistakes and mending them. And for three reasons. You see, if I really believe that I'm a dirty old rat or I'm a pretty horrible person, I can't really confess my mistakes. Because if I feel that I'm really a lowly, despicable person, these sins and mistakes are natural. <laughs> They're inevitable. They're not even noticeable. They're not even conspicuous. Imagine, imagine, my entire suit is stained. I'm eating the chocolate mousse cake and all the chocolate now is on my shirt. And then somebody comes over to my shirt and makes it a little more dirty. It's not even noticeable. It's so dirty. Who cares if there's another stain? If my shirt is clean and then you stain it, I'm upset. If I acknowledge and I'm aware of the beauty of my soul, the great potential of my personality, the depth of my character, the holiness of my existence, the potential that exists within me, then I am perturbed. I'm pained by those components in my life that I feel don't belong to me. I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed by the stains because I feel this is not me. I am so much more, I am so much better. Confession, the prerequisite for confession is acknowledging your goodness, your holiness, your greatness, your purity, your sacredness, your beauty. Ah, I'm so beautiful, I'm capable of so much more. I don't want to live with this mistake. I confess. What is more? If I feel that I'm a worthless person, I'm damaged goods, I look at my sins and I say, they're inevitable. I didn't really have control. I'm a victim. If I'm a victim, how can I confess? Why should I confess? I blame everybody else. Only when you believe that you're a free person, only when you acknowledge that you're not a victim of somebody else's decisions. Then you can say, I made a mistake. What is more? Only when you realize that you're in control of your life can you make men's for the future and say, this will not happen again because I want to change it and I'm going to change it. So there's three points. If I feel like a schmata, if I feel like a nobody, if I feel like a helpless, despicable creature, if I feel like a sinner, essentially. I don't want to change. I don't feel there's a need to change. I don't even notice that there's a need to change. I'm not motivated to change. What's the difference? I'm so dirty, I'll be a little less dirty. I smell anyway. I'll smell a little more. I don't notice it. I'm not ashamed by it. I don't see a different potential. Only when I rec recognize my greatness, my beauty, can I say, you know what? I am bigger than this. I am larger than this. Number two, only if I recognize my greatness and my power, can I take responsibility for my life and not blame you. And not blame my mother and my father, my brother, my sister, my rabbi, my community, my yeshiva, my environment, my mother-in-law, my wife, my boss. I could say me. I'm accountable. And number three, I can take control for the future. And I could say tomorrow, 
it's going to be different because the buck stops here. You know about the fellow, the Jew would come into the bar. Again, to say Lechayim. He drank the cup, finished it. Lechayim downed it, took the glass and threw it at the bartender. His face, he's bleeding. He says, what's this? He says, I'm so sorry I grew up in the home of an alcoholic with uncontrollable rage. I'm embarrassed with my behavior, but what should I do? Okay, I forgive you. Next night he comes, drinks the glass, throws it right at the bartender. What's this? He says, I didn't tell you, my mother was a codependent. Terrible anger in the house. I'm so embarrassed with my behavior, it's uncontrollable. What should I do? Okay. Next night he comes, throws it again. He says, what now? He says, I'm so embarrassed, forgive me. He says, listen, either you go to therapy or I call the police. He says, I'll go to therapy. Comes back nine months later, orders a glass, finishes it, throws it at the bartender's face. He says, what now? He says, I went to therapy and now I'm not embarrassed anymore. <laughs> Confession... Confession, as a prerequisite, demands the recognition and the awareness of how beautiful you are. There's a verse in the Song of Songs. You remember the verse? Shchoirani v'nava. I am dark and I'm beautiful. Black is beautiful was coined by King Solomon. That's exactly what confession is. Confession means I made a mistake. And you know why it's bothering me? Because I'm a beautiful person. If I'm a grotesque person, it means nothing. I'm a beautiful person and that's why my darkness is perturbing me. I know I'm greater. I know I'm deeper. I know I'm capable of so much more because I'm beautiful. I'm dark, but I'm so beautiful. That's what tshuva is. That's what confession is. That's what repentance is. If you cannot get up to God and say, there are so many things about my life that are good, that are right. There are things that I get right. There are beautiful things about me, my essence, my soul, my behavior. Then I can't confess for my mistakes either. It's meaningless. It's pure guilt that leads to depression and despair, not to mending and recreation. Imagine again, a husband comes home to his wife and his wife looks at him and says, darling, again you made a mistake. And she explains to him what that mistake was. And he looks at her and he says these words. Have you ever heard them? Honey, I always make mistakes. I'm never right. I'm always wrong. I'm the worst guy who ever lived. I'm clueless. I'm out for lunch. I'm always wrong. And you're always right. And I'm always wrong. Somehow, his wife is not pleased by that confession. Why? He just told her the truest thing a Jewish man can say. I'm always wrong. You're always right. Why is she not pleased? We know why she's not pleased. Because it's meaningless. Because whenever you tell your wife, I'm always wrong and you're always right, essentially what you're saying is, you're impossible. (laughs) You're impossible to please. I will never get it right with you. So let me just say, I'm always wrong. That's a disengagement. That's the end of a relationship. That's not confession. It's really saying... You're an impossible kvetch and nudnik. Forget it. I'm not even going to try. You know what a confession is? Confession is you tell your wife, I'm often right, but last night what I said was wrong. That's a confession. That's a confession. I'm right, but what I did or said last night was wrong. I apologize. I'm sorry. So the first confession is... I did everything you wanted. Ah! Now! You're right! You're good! You're beautiful! You're holy! You're awesome! Now you could do tshuva. Of course you have to sing when you say a shamnu. If you don't sing when you say a shamnu, you miss the point. 
If you're not celebrating your life, if you're not dancing through life, if you're not exhilarated, if you're not ecstatic about your spiritual, physical, moral, ethical, psychological, emotional, calling, potential, then the Ashamnu and Bagadnu is just... That's not a shamnu. You need a person. I need to see your presence. God says, let me see who you are. You start singing. You sing and now you say, I'm so good. And if I'm so good, why am I so bad? If I'm so good, why am I living such a small, narrow life? Why am I petty? They say, what's the difference between children and adults? What's the difference? The answer I say always is, adults keep grudges, children don't. How many times does your daughter or son tell you, Mommy, I'm never speaking to you again. Tati, you can't have any part of my birthday cake. I don't want you to be my Tati, I wish somebody else was my Tati. You ever got that? And you're like in therapy, oh yeah, yeah, what did I do? (laughs) Twelve minutes later, you buy your son a Slurpee for $1.50 and you're his best friend. He forgot about his grudge to you. What about an adult? Somebody tells you, I'm never speaking to you again. Fifteen years later, they don't invite you for their grandson's bar mitzvah. Fifteen years later. Why? I thought children were immature and adults are mature. The answer, open your heart, say the great mystics. Children choose being happy over being right. Adults choose being right over being happy. For children, the most important thing is to be happy. Good relationships create joy. For adults, the most important thing is to be right. I'll be miserable, but I'm going to be right. I won't speak to my sister-in-law, to my nephew, to my brother, to my father, to my uncle for 30 years, but I'm going to be right. When you realize who you are, you're a strong person. You're a big person. Why do you have to live such a small life? Why are you living in such a narrow orbit? Be big. Be grand. Be broad. You're more powerful than you think. What does the Tanya say? Your soul is a chelik aleikam imal mamish. Your soul is a piece of God. Why do you have such low self-confidence? Because somebody made a comment to you, be like God. Nobody destroys God's confidence. Why is your confidence destroyed? And let me tell you something. That's the essence of truva. When you realize the grandness of your soul, you say, this is not for me. Fair! Fair! You ever heard that? The problem is you only heard the fair. You didn't hear the introduction. The introduction is You are the greatest, you are the deepest, you are the holiest, you are the most noble. Then you could say Ashamnu. First you gotta get up and say there's so much right in my life. That's confession. You know, this baby camel turns to her mother and says, Mama, I have a question, yeah. Mama, why do we have why do we have these ugly eyelashes? Mama says, hey, because we're camels. Our destiny is to trek for thousands of miles through the deserts. And there are sandstorms. And these eyelashes protect us. The sand should not go into our eyes. Ah, Mama, why do we have these ugly feet, three-toed legs? Ugh. Mom, daughter... We trek thousands of miles. We need good feet to hold us up. So we have these three large toes on each foot. Ah, ah. Mama, what about these ugly, grotesque humps on our back? What's that all about? Ah, My dear daughter, our vision, our destiny, our calling is to be able to march thousands and thousands of miles. There's no water there. So our bodies have to store enormous quantities of water so we don't suffer from dehydration. Hence the shape, hence the humps. Ah, mama, I got it. 
So we have three-toed legs to trek thousands of miles in the desert. We have ugly eyelashes to protect us from the sandstorms as we travel thousands of miles. We have humps on our backs to store water for thousands of miles as we march through the Sahara Desert. So mama, what in the world are we doing locked up in a cage in the zoo? That's tshuva. That's the essence of tshuva. That's the essence of Rosh Hashanah. That's the essence of Yom Kippur. If you realize who you are, so why are you locked up in a cage in the zoo? Why am I locked up in a cage in the zoo? Why am I not speaking to this one in my family and to this one in my family? Why am I in a fight with this one and in a fight with this one? Why am I carrying resentment to this one and this one? Why can't I confront the situation? Why do I feel that I'm so small and so weak that I cannot confront my skeleton, my ghost, my demon? Why do I feel so weak that I can't say I'm sorry, I can't be upfront? Why am I like a squirrel and I have to lie to this person and that person? Why do I have to remain an addict for the rest of my life? Why can't I gain control? Why am I locked up in a cage? Why can't I build an authentic relationship with God, with my soul, with my spouse, with my children, with friends? Why am I locked up in a zoo? That's tshuva. But if you don't realize who you are, you don't realize what you're capable of, then tshuva is just more guilt and more guilt and more guilt. That's not tshuva. That's depression. Tshuva means return. Return to what? Return to you. Return to yourself. Return to your essence. Friends, friends, you know, when I think of this time of the year, I think about a certain Jew. And I want to tell you about this Jew because his story is very meaningful to me. I think it should be meaningful to all of us because it really captures this message. Days of guilt or days of love. His name was Dr. Ludwig Gottman. He was born in 1899. He's known to many because of one major contribution. He is the one who is the founder of the Paralympic Games. How did it come about? Born in 1899 to an Orthodox Jewish family, he grows up in Germany by the early 1930s. He is the greatest brain surgeon in all of Germany. Hitler comes to power in 1933. That ends Gottman, that ends Dr. Ludwig. Gottman's career, he flees. He escapes to Britain. The British ask him to create a center to treat spinal injuries. He does that in the middle of the war in 1942. He starts dealing with a group of patients whom we know today as paraplegics. And he is horrified by the way they're treated. You have to understand, the way paraplegics were seen in the early 40s was essentially as hopeless patients. In other words, those paralyzed, heaven forbid, from the waist below, usually as a result of an injury in the spinal cord, were seen simply as victims with which there was not much to do. They were all given an enormous amount of painkillers to dull their pain. They were in bed for the rest of their life till they died. Dr. Ludwig Gottman felt this was a tragedy and a travesty. He felt that they didn't only have a life behind them, they also had a life ahead of them. And he began to transform the entire culture in the hospital. First of all, he reduced the painkillers. Naturally, 
There was more pain. But he compelled the nurses, the staff, to start doing exercises with them. He compelled all the staff and made them sit with each patient and listen to their stories. Where they grew up, how they grew up, their dreams, their visions, their success stories, their failures. Listen to them, make them feel human. He made them engage in various exercises and he introduced sports. He got his nurses into wheelchairs. The nurses and doctors into wheelchairs competing against the paraplegics in his center. It was very painful. The patients were not used to this. They had to challenge themselves in very serious ways and naturally their bodies protested. But this was not only, this was not the biggest issue. The biggest issue was the Jewish doctor was being accused of torturing ill patients. Another doctor accused him of being delusional, looking at these crippled, disabled human beings and seeing in them something else. In a famous exchange, he turns to Dr. Ludwig and he says, Who do you think they are? And the doctor looks at him and says, Who do I think they are? They are the best of men. Which became the title of a documentary film about him titled, The Best of Men. And after some time, he began seeing literally miracles, transformation. They were sitting up. They were moving around. They were expressive. They were doing things. They were engaging their minds. They were engaging their bodies. They were making physical, psychological, emotional progress. And in 1948, he takes the games out of the hospital and he introduces it to the world community. And then in 1960 in Rome, we have the first Paralympics created by Dr. Ludwig Gottman. The last one had almost 5,000 disabled patients from 140 countries around the world. It became not only a success story, but a miracle story, which he was fortunate to observe much before his death in 1980. And I asked myself, where did Dr. Ludwig Gottman get this insight from? Where? Was it perhaps living six years under Nazi Germany and seeing that Jews were essentially treated as subhumans? And he knew how it felt. So when he saw these patients being treated as subhuman, he wouldn't tolerate it. Perhaps. Was it perhaps another experience we're unaware of? Or was it perhaps as a Jewish boy who grew up in a Jewish home, he basically internalized in a very serious way the essence of what tshuva is. What is tshuva? Tshuva is the belief that people's lives are not only behind them, but people's lives are ahead of them. And every person is crippled in his or her own way, some tragically, physically, some mentally, some emotionally, some psychologically. And the essence of tshuva is the unwavering belief in the human spirit and the unwavering belief that the soul is a piece of God and nothing in the world can shatter the essential beauty and wholesomeness of the neshama, of the human spirit and the human psyche. And when we believe that in ourselves and we believe it in other people, we can accentuate it, we can cultivate it, we can bring it out. Isn't that the essence of tshuva that he introduced into this field of medicine that literally saved the lives of tens of thousands of people till today and gave them the dignity that they deserve? So when we want to define Rosh Hashanah, how do we define it? The sages in their brilliance did it in three words. Hayom, haras, oilam. And I ask you, it doesn't mean today is the birthday of the world. It means today is the day when we are eternally pregnant. Why this funny term? And how this change? How can they make this change? And the answer is, that's exactly the point. What the rabbis were trying to teach each and every one of us with this expression is that on Rosh Hashanah, we have to ask ourselves this question. 
And the question is, Hayom Harat Olam. But what does that mean? Is it the day when I will remain eternally pregnant? Or is it the day when I will finally be born? That's the question I have to ask myself. So many of us remain eternally pregnant. What does that mean? We remain in the womb of our mothers. Our potential remains stifled. The potential is there. The fetus is there. A glorious birth is possible. But we decide consciously or unconsciously to remain eternally pregnant. Locked up in a womb. Caged up in some authentic or delusional confinement. Our dreams, our potentials, our visions, our true power remains a potential story. Never actualized. Haras oilam, forever you are pregnant. You may be here, I may see you, but what am I looking at? I'm looking at a shell. Where are you? You're pregnant somewhere. You're a potential. Your story is the story that was never told, but it could have been told. Or, Harasoila means today is the birthday of the world. Today, at last, I will be born. I will be born. I will emerge from the womb. I will emerge with my full power, potential, glory, and calling. Hayom harat olam, that's the question we have to ask. Every one of us can be born, but why do we choose to remain pregnant? Very often it's because of fear. Very often it's because of pain. Very often it's because of resentment. Very often it's because of hurt that we carry. And deep shame and guilt. And therefore it's easier to remain eternally pregnant. And thus a new year says the Tanya creates a new energy, a new opportunity, where God's energy is reborn. A new energy emerges, allowing our energy to reemerge, to be able to confess not only our sins, to be able to confess our virtues. We need Jewish confession today, not only of our sins, of our virtues. We need Jews who stand up in front of the mirror and say, I'm part of you, I'm good, I'm holy. I'm not going to be locked up in the zoo. I can change myself, I can change my environment, I can impact the world. That's the confession you need. In fact, it's a confession we do every single morning, right when we wake up. We say in the Jewish prayer, God, the soul that you have given to me is pure, impeccable, holy, flawless. That's the confession we make. Once you make that confession, now you can make all other confessions. I made mistakes. I made bad mistakes. I ruined this. I ruined that. But you put it in context. You put your mistakes in context. You're not a mistake. You made a mistake. So many young people I meet, they feel they are the mistake. Ay, 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 ay. That's not tshuva. That's crippling. That's devastating. Days of guilt or days of love. These are the days of the greatest love. These are the days, as the Kabbalists say, you know, when there's a huge fire... And you have a little flame, a little flame or a few, some sparks. And the sparks naturally gravitate to the large flame and they're absorbed in the large flame. Every soul is a spark of God. During the time of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the source comes close to the spark. And naturally the spark wants to be absorbed in the source. Kiruv It's the days of the deepest love. All the guilt, all the tshuva, all the confession, all the repentance. What is it about? It's about the love, the belief that God has in you, even if you don't have it in yourself. The belief of how great you can be and of how deep you can live, that you could really suck the marrow out of life and that you should not look at yourself as just a victim, 
as damaged goods because of X, Y, and Z and just live a life of quiet desperation. It's the time of the deepest explosion of love. Friends, I want to share this with you. There was a Jew who lives in Kiryat Shmuel in Israel, in Jerusalem. His name, Rabbi Chaim Weintraub. He is involved in outreach, particularly with youth, whom they call today kids at risk. Teenagers who have often left their homes, left their traditions, and are vulnerable to many different influences, sometimes harmful. And Rabbi Weintraub from Kiryas Shmuel is known to be particularly active with these youngsters. He goes to gas stations, cafeterias, clubs, bars, hangs out with them, schmoozes with them, drinks with them, eats with them, speaks to them, hugs them, loves them, embraces them. This is what this lovely rabbi does. A little while ago, his three-year-old boy had an upshernish. An upshernish is the Jewish custom where a boy of three gets his first haircut, puts on his kippah, has his beautiful payas, his side locks. And a few days after his upshernish, three-year-old boy went to school in the morning. In the middle of the day, he said to his mora, to his teacher, that he has a headache. His head hurts him. So she said next door, there are cots, and she took him to the next door. There were cots for naps. And she said, why don't you take a nap on one of these beds? And when you feel better, you'll come back. So this little boy, Rabbi Weintraub's son, lay down to take a nap. And when the teacher went in some time later to check on him, she saw immediately that something is wrong. And it was determined that the boy has returned his soul to its maker. He went to sleep and he never woke up. It was devastating beyond words. The rabbi and his wife, the siblings, were sitting shiva for this angelic boy. People came to visit. The pain unbearable, the grief incomprehensible, the mystery infinite. Who came to Shiva to pay a Shiva call? A bunch of these teenagers. Many of them tattooed, many of them with earring, many piercings throughout their body. Many of them have been through lots of different experiences in their few years. But they came to visit the good rabbi whom they loved. And they sat with him. And before they stood up to leave the shiva house, they turned to Rabbi Weinschraub and they said, Rabbi, we want to give honor to you and to your little boy. We want to pay tribute to you. And therefore, we want to tell you that this coming Shabbat, this coming Shabbos, we're going to observe, we're going to keep. We won't drive, we won't smoke, we won't smoke up. We will celebrate and observe this one Shabbat in your and your son's honor. And they stood up, they offered condolences, and they left the home. There were a few other guests or people, visitors, who were sitting there. And they turned to the father and they said, that's cheap. That's cheap. After all you have done to them, after all you have done for them, all they can do for you is tell you we're going to keep one Shabbat. I would expect them to say, for the rest of the year, we'll do Shabbos. For five years, for six months, for a few years, one Shabbos, they're going to keep one Shabbos 24 hours and that's supposed to make you happy? Very unbecoming. 
Rabbi Chaim Weintraub turned to these visitors and he said, let me explain to you something. I'm going to ask you a question. What do you think I would pay in order to be able to have my boy back with me just for one Shabbos? How much money would I pay to have my little boy chick with me just for one Shabbos? Just that when I come home Friday night, he'll come running to the door and I'll lift him up and put him on my lap and hold him as we sing Shalom Aleichem and Eishas Chayim. Just to hold his hand when I say the Kiddush, to put him on my lap when we sing the Friday night songs to cuddle him up in his blanket after Friday night dinner and tell him a story, to hold his hand and walk with him to Shul Shabbos morning and come home and throw him up into the ear and play a game with him. What do you think I would pay in order to have that just for one Shabbos? They looked at him and he looked back at them and he said, you know, I would pay everything. I would give away my house, I would give away my car, I would give away all my clothes. I would give away my last shekel, my last agura, to be able to have my boy just for one more Shabbos near me and with me here on earth. And that Shabbos would be the most memorable one for me. Friends, don't you understand? This Shabbos, our Father in Heaven is going to have eight of His children with Him a whole Shabbos. Do you know the pleasure? Do you know the delight that the Reboi Shaloilam that God is going to have this one Shabbos because of eight of His teenagers who have been lost, who have wandered far away from Yiddishkeit, are going to come back to their Father in Heaven this Shabbos. You're sitting here and telling me, eh, just one Shabbos? Just one Shabbos? What's the big deal? Do you know the nachas? Do you know the joy? Do you know the depth of emotions that God is going to have this Shabbos from embracing these eight teenagers who are going to come celebrate Shabbos, His day of rest together with Him. Don't underestimate it. Don't denigrate their decision. Don't look down at it. Realize the awesomeness. These are the words of a grief-stricken father at the Shiva call to these guests. I, what it taught me. What it taught me, first of all, about how to treat people, about how to appreciate people's gestures, people's growth, how to be able to celebrate people. But it also taught me, and I think it teaches us, the whole essence of these days, the essence of Elul, of Rosh Hashanah, of Yom Kippur, We look at ourselves and we don't realize who we are. Do you understand the great joy that God has when a Jew comes over to him and says, Father, Mother, I want to spend time with you. Let's make up with each other. Let's open our hearts to each other. Can we understand the depth of the celebration of these days when so many Jews come and they want to connect to their father, to their mother in heaven? It goes beyond. That's the essence of these days. Today is a time when we need this, not only individually, but also collectively. Because one of the greatest maladies that we as a people have is, we suffer from an inferiority complex. I don't have any other way of explaining how Jewish Intellectuals, writers, actors, philanthropists could sign a piece of paper calling for a deal between six world powers 
and Iran. They tell us, trust Iran. And I say to you, I trust Iran. Who do I trust Iran? I trust Iran with every fiber of my being. I trust Iran when it declares that the Jewish state needs to be annihilated. I trust Iran. I trust Iran when it says the Holocaust never happened. I trust that that's what they believe. I trust Iran when it says that Israel is the vermin, the bacteria of the earth. I trust Iran. I wish I wouldn't, but I trust them. If there's one thing our history teaches us is that when an enemy says they want us wiped out, we should trust them. We should believe them. We shouldn't doubt them. But we often have an inferiority complex. And today more than ever is a day when Jews have to understand that if there's going to be a time when the world is going to respect the Jewish people, it's when the Jewish people will respect the Jewish people. And if there's going to be a day when the world will admire Israel, it's when the Jewish people will admire Israel. And if there's going to come a day when the Jewish, when the world will respect the Jewish homeland and the Jewish people, it's when the Jewish people will respect the Jewish people and the Jewish homeland. When the Jewish people will respect their heritage and their faith their tradition and their history, when the Jewish people will not be apologetic and not duck and not feel that they have to remain eternally pregnant, but rather will have the courage and the confidence to emerge and fulfill our destiny as the moral teachers of the universe to lead it from a jungle to a state of redemption. Thank you very much. Anatova. Uh-huh.